Praise the name of the Lord forever. My, what blessing and what, what worship and what waves of glory and what singing and what music and what fellowship and what love runs from heart to heart. I'm just, I'm just uh, so completely and thoroughly enjoying the blessing of God all during this week and counted a real blessed privilege to be here. God is so very, very good to this preacher to allow me to be here in this wonderful, refreshing, inspiring atmosphere. The Spirit of God is here. And I couldn't help but think so I sat in the meeting and the Spirit of God was so wonderfully moving in our midst tonight that uh, it sounds exactly the same, only we didn't have the volume back in those days. The meetings were much, much, much smaller. But it sounds exactly the same as it sounded back in 1916. It smells the same say smells, I want to tell you something. When I got the baptism of the Holy Ghost, I smelled with my olfactory nerves, I smelled a beautiful, indescribable perfume that I never smelled before. And once in a while, I get a whiff of it yet. You say, you're crazy, all right? Have it your way. I know when I'm in a Pentecostal meeting, and when I'm not, and I know I'm in a Pentecostal meeting tonight. Oh, God is here. And if we could only get every soul that's in this place to dare to believe God for the thing that you need and for the thing that you desire in your heart from Him. I don't mean earthly things. Give me a new car. I don't mean that kind of thing. I mean that need down in your heart of spiritual life and victory and blessing and liberation and building up and strengthening from the Spirit of God. If we could only get everyone to believe it and to, and to somehow reach out and, and appropriate it. Why, it's here. It's for whosoever will. Don't let the enemy rob you of your portion tonight. And if you haven't received your portion yet, we certainly pray and sincerely and devoutly desire that not one shall escape, but that everyone shall get their portion from the Master's table tonight. We used to sing a song, And the end is not yet, praise the Lord. Blessings new he's still bestowing, and my cup is overflowing, and the end is not yet, praise the Lord. Then somebody invented a new verse, you'll get your portion yet, praise the Lord. You'll get your portion yet, praise the Lord. In my Father's house there's plenty, more than enough for 120, and you'll get your portion yet, praise the Lord. And so you see them getting blessed all around you, and you're like Gideon's fleece, the dew is falling out around you, and you're as dry as the great American desert. It gets so dry some places out there in Southern California and Arizona that they say they gave up trying to lick postage stamps years ago. They always stick them on with a safety pin. There's no moisture. It's so dry. And you might be just that dry tonight. But God's got a portion for you, praise the Lord. And you can go home to your rest tonight or just uh, with joy bells and glory flooding your soul, praise the Lord. I want to bring you another message tonight on salvation from the 24th chapter of 2 Samuel. From the 24th chapter of 2 Samuel... 
I'll read the 25th verse, the last verse of the chapter. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated for the land and the plague was stayed for Israel. Our blessed Father in heaven, we thank thee for the wonderful privilege of being in thy presence tonight to know that we're on worshiping grounds, to know that we're under the blood of Jesus and that you're hearing our prayers and our worship and you see our tears and you hear every sigh and interpret every longing after the higher, deeper things of God in our spirits tonight. We pray, Lord, that thou will bless the preaching of thy word. Help us to speak in the spirit. And we pray that underneath our words and very, if necessary, apart from our words, let thy spirit speak to every individual to their need and for thy glory in Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. Well, uh, Israel wasn't exactly always doing what God wanted them to do and they were in a half-backslidden state starting to worship idols and the wrath of God was kindled against Israel and God moved David, or according to Chronicles, Satan moved David. God lifted his hand, let Satan get in at David, and David was tempted to go and number the Israelites. Now, I know it's generally supposed that it was wrong for David to number the Israelites because God said, when you number Israel, they shall pay a tax, a half a shekel of the sanctuary, which was redemption money. And that may have been the case in this instance, but I've never yet been persuaded that that really fully is the case. For some reason that I've never yet fully discovered to my own heart's satisfaction, God didn't want David to number Israel and Judah, find out how many soldiers he had, or to find out what the general population was. I think it had to do more with the military. But uh, David said, I want to number Israel. And so he called his commander-in-chief, Joab, in and said, Now, Joab, you take a battery of secretaries with you and census takers and start from Dan way up north, work your way down and come out of Beersheba way down south, bring me back the sum total of the number of men in Jude and Israel. And Joab had more sense than David. He said, why does this thing please the Lord? You know this isn't God's will. Well, Joab didn't say, uh, are you going to collect the half shekel of the sanctuary? He didn't say that. He just said, this isn't God's will. So I don't know exactly all the reasons why. I could spend a lot of time guessing, but we're not in guessing games tonight. I'm preaching a positive gospel. So... The will of David prevailed over the will of Joab, and David said, start, go on, get on the job. So Joab took with him a battery of secretaries, and they started way up north, came out way down south, and it took them nine months and 20 days. Skipping down to the ninth verse, just to save a little time, Joab gave up the sum of the number of the people unto the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men that drew the sword. That's why I believe it had to do with the military census. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. One reason why I think God didn't want David to number Israel, he wanted David to keep his trust not in numbers, but in him. The Christian church down through the unfolding centuries from the apostolic day, whenever God sent a revival, the church made shipwreck and went down the drain and lost it because they made shipwreck by running against certain rocks. Those rocks are numbers, money, and education. And I know I'm risking my neck to make that kind of a statement in a Bible school and a center of learning, but when numbers and money and education become the thing we trust in rather than the arm of the living God, 
we're on the way down and out and don't know it. No substitute. All the great denominations that started out born in the holy fire of zeal and love and demonstration of the Holy Ghost, and almost every one of them, that's the way they started. They hadn't gone on too many years till they were all lost out, backslidden, lost the touch of God, cold as a polar bear's nose, and, and, and they, were, they were lost out because they made shipwreck of faith on the rocks of numbers, money, and education. My little observation for the last years of my life has been that the Pentecostal people are no exception. We get sidetracked. Don't you do it. Don't get sidetracked on numbers. Oh, we had so many, and as long as there's a big push of people there, why, everything's all right, but that numbers doesn't necessarily mean God's holiest and highest will. Mm -mm. But I don't want to become argumentative. I'm just giving a few little seed thoughts along the way for you to ruminate on. You know what that means? Chew your cud. Just uh, think that over and meditate on it. And so David's will prevailed against Joab. Joab at the end of nine months and 20 days came back and said, here it is, 800,000 men in Israel and 500 uh, and 500,000 men, 8 and 5 is 13, 1,300,000 men. Now you know the sum total. What good does it do you? And David had obtained the desire of his rebellious self-will against the will of God, even though warned otherwise by Joab. And then, thank God, God didn't throw him to the lions. God didn't throw him... Let him go down the drain. God didn't say, you disobeyed me. I'm not going to have anything more to do with you. In the 10th verse, And David's heart smote him after that he had numbered the people. Now, usually, I've been in this thing all my life, and as you, just a little hint, Usually evangelists and usually leaders of religious meetings, Pentecostal meetings, they try to make the people feel good. Amy McPherson many years ago used to come on the platform and uh, her, her, her phrase was, is everybody happy? And say amen, and they'd all say amen. Everybody smile, everybody feel good. And the singing and the praying and the preaching and everything. I'm not criticizing. I'm not criticizing. I'm just telling you how it was. It was designed to lift the spirits of the people. And that is largely still the format followed by successful evangelists. Make everybody feel good. But that's not always God's plan. I pray seriously to God tonight that if there's anybody here that is not right with God and you're in a state of rebellion against God, I pray that God will make you squirm. I pray that if you don't get right with God in the meeting while the lights are still turned on, that God will follow you home and you'll sleep on a bed of spikes. You'll twist and turn and God will lash your conscience or your conscience will lash you and God will pour the hot coals of conviction on your head and you'll be anything on the face of the earth but happy. You'll be extremely unhappy. And one of the ministries of one of the most important overlooked ministries of the Holy Ghost is not always to make people happy, but it's to make people sad. And it's to make people get down and feel that they're being shaken over hell on a rotten stick and they better call on God and do some tall repenting and get right with God, make them feel bad. Is that a new doctrine? Well, I'm telling you the truth. Yes. And oh, I thank God for the faithfulness of the blessed Holy Ghost. When we, get, when we give way to that old nature and we get bullheaded and stubborn and we're going to have our way and we're going to walk in our self-will and we obtain the object of our desire 
out of God's will, I'm glad God doesn't throw us overboard. He comes with a smiting of our conscience. He comes convicting by the Spirit of God. He doesn't condemn, but he convicts. Hallelujah. Jesus said the Holy Ghost will convict, will convince man of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so, thank God for the faithful ministry of the Holy Spirit that when we are out of the will of God, when we have rebelled against God, God just doesn't throw us overboard and let us go our way, but the Spirit of God is faithful to convict and to make us feel bad. And here's the king. Why, he had a right to do as he pleased. He was the king. He, was he didn't have any Supreme Court to call him to time. He was only answerable to God. He was God's anointed. The holy anointing oil came on him as well as on the high priest. He was anointed by God three times. Yes, sir. He was anointed when he was made king of Judah. Uh, when, when, when Saul poured the horn of oil on him, when he was down there following the sheep, when he was a stripling, and then, then he was anointed to be king over Hebron, over the southern kingdom of Judah, and after seven years or more, he was anointed the third time to be king over the whole business, whole 12 tribes. He had lots of oil on his head. That's why he was such a good king. And so David was a holy, was an anointed king of God. He belonged to God. He was a man after God's own heart. But he got himself in, a, in, a, in some trouble now because he acted in self-will. And ever since the Garden of Eden, the taproot, of all the trouble that the world is in, oppression, storms, violence, thorns and briars, famines, death, destruction, disease. God's creation is marred by the curse of sin, wars, bloodshed, heartache, heartbreak institutions to take care of the feeble-minded and the, and the violently insane. Oh, the horror and the sorrow and the curse that has come on the race in the wake of Adam's transgression and the taproot of the whole awful business and situation is self-will. Self-will, self-will, self-will. Students, saints, learn to submit. Learn to give in. Learn to submit. Learn to surrender. You say, well, I've got an anointing as well as anybody else. Well, did I hear one of the teachers so pointedly and so wonderfully explain just a day or two ago, we need not anybody teach us. The Holy Ghost teaches us. The Holy Ghost, all the Holy Ghost will teach you is to say, yes, you're being taught the truth or you are not being taught the truth. And I learned that the first three weeks I was in Pentecost. God marvelously opened our eyes to that wonderful truth. And God wants us to learn how to submit and to be teachable and to, and to be willing to surrender our will to his will. As long as we persist in our stubborn will, you're headed for trouble and you're on a collision course with the eventual judgment of God just as sure as God made little apples. Now, David, when he got the answer and he fulfilled his self-willed desire, the 10th verse of the 24th chapter of 2 Samuel, David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in this thing that I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. The devil says, do this. It's smart. It's wise. It's the in thing. They're all doing it. It's the in thing. But let me tell you, in the eyes of Almighty God and in the Word of God, all sin is utter foolishness. It's ridiculous. It borders on insanity. David recognized it, and he said, Oh, God, I made a first-class fool of myself. I've done very foolishly. And that's the way, thank God for the faithfulness of the blessed Holy Spirit who deals so faithfully with us to tell us when we've gotten out of the way through self-will. And the thing to do 
is get down and seek the face of God. That's the way out. David was. David knew the things of God. He hadn't forgotten all he'd learned about the ways of God and the principles of divine dealing. He remembered, so he had sense enough left. Even though he'd acted the fool, he, he turned to God and said, Oh, Lord, I've, I've done very foolishly, and now I beseech thee, take away the iniquity of thy servant. Well, that was the right thing for David to do. When you do fail, don't lay there in the mud. Get up and make tracks for the altar and get to God. Start to call on God. Praise the Lord. That's the, thing, that's the thing to do. And then when David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord came unto the prophet Gad, David's private prophet, his seer. In those days they called a prophet a seer because a, a prophet saw things. Therefore he was called a seer, a person that seed things, saw things. <laughs> You understand? He's called a seer. So David's private seer came and said to David the next morning, Thus saith the Lord, The Lord offers you three things. Choose one of them, that I may do it unto thee. Ah! Now I know this is the Old Testament economy, but there is a divine principle still at work. When you sow to the wind... You're still going to reap what you sow. And the old adage, the chickens come home to roost, is still true. And there is a irrevocable law of retribution that you're going to reap what you sow. And there is a retribution that we have to face. And there is sad consequences for acting the fool. And even in this dispensation of grace, there, uh, there are vestigial remnants of that principle that still operate among God's most choice saints. Keeping up with me? Now, it's, not anything to, it's not anything wrong to just sit and meditate on what I'm speaking about as I go along. I'm speaking deliberately so we can think this through and think along with me. Let God get down and speak to the depths of our hearts. And so the prophet Gad, the, was it Gad? Yeah, the prophet Gad came and said, Now God says, choose one of these three judgments. Here's the three judgments. Shall seven years of famine come upon thee in thy land? Number two, or wilt thou flee three months? Before thine enemies while they pursue thee? Or do you want three days of plague or pestilence in thy land? Now advise, and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. And David got to the altar the second time. He says to Gad, I am in a great strait. S-T-R-A-I-T. It means a little tight place that's hard to squeeze through. Doesn't mean the shortest distance between two given points. It means... A tight place to squeeze through, like the Straits of Magellan. I am in a great strait. Oh, Bible school students, deacons, preachers, faculty members. When is the church of God and when is a drunken, sin-cursed world staggering on the way to damnation? And out of darkness, when are we going to learn that sin always gets us in a tight place? The way of the transgressor is hard, and that means Pentecostal transgressors. That means preacher transgressors. That means saints that get wrapped up in self-will and transgress. That self-will and transgression is going to get us into a straight place. Gerald Chapman found that out. Oh, you don't know Gerald Chapman. He was something like a Jesse James over in Connecticut. Bank robber. Go in, shoot the cashier down, grab the money and go. But they finally caught up with him. And they built a special, oh, I know it wouldn't go today. But some years ago it went. 
They built a special execution chamber for him, building a perfect cube. Gerald Chapman was intelligent, hard-boiled, very probably demon-possessed. I don't know, but he was extremely impenitent, hard, criminal. Society felt it wasn't safe for him, safe for him to continue to live on the face of the earth. And all the public breathed a sigh of relief when he stepped through that little iron door and in something like seven seconds they'd clamp clamps around his legs and around his arm. They pulled the trigger and that special execution uh, 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 gallows grabbed him and yanked him something like 28 feet in the air and cracked him down on the floor again. And in, a, in a matter of seconds he was dead. Gerald Chapman learned that sin got him in a great strait. Hope you will never be executed for your sins, but you're going to get in a great strait if you, can, if you persist in the ways of self-will and rebellion against God. It'll catch up with you sooner or later. Didn't expect a sermon like this in Christ for the Nations Institute. I never expected to preach a sermon like this either, but I felt the Lord put it on my heart. Now here it is. Want to follow through, or shall we be dismissed? <laughs> David said unto God, I'm in a great strait. You go back and tell God, let me fall into the hand of God, hand of the Lord. Now here it is, for his mercies are great. Don't let me fall into the hand of man. He'd been chased for seven years by Saul over the mountains of Judea. And he yelled across the valley, Hey, you over there, uh, Saul, you're chasing a, a partridge in the wilderness. You're trying to catch a flea on the mountains. Did you ever try to catch a flea? Here he is. And he's over there. And that's the way David was for seven years while he was pursued by his enemies. He was so sick and tired of that, he didn't want to fall into the hand of men. And he said, well, seven years of famine on the, on the kingdom of Israel, well, that's not fair. He said, I know God's a tender-hearted God, and he, he'll mete out justice, and this is justice but I know his mercies are great. That's the only chance we have in all creation is the mercy of God. Grace is our only hope. Grace is our only plea. I have no other argument. I want no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And if you won't humble yourself to call on the mercy of God, you're done for. There's no hope for you. God has no other provision. And so David really, this time he's praying, this is the second time he goes to God, he says, I'll fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercies are great. He knew that God tempered the wind to the shorn lamb. And so Dad went back to God and said, your self-willed, sinning, erring servant down there, he says, the pestilence. So the people began to die. They began to die up at Dan where the census began, and they died just like a rainstorm. They were dying all over the, dying all over the place. How many was it? I just forget. I think it was 180,000. No, 70,000 men. From Dan to Beersheba, there died 70,000 men. And some little pipsqueak of a contestant against the truth of God, God's word says God was unjust to kill 70,000 innocent men just because David sinned. That, that bunch of rebels and idolaters, idolaters against God were not innocent. They were as guilty as David was and more guilty. It was because of their sin that God raised his hand off David and let him be tempted in the first place because they were actually beginning to sacrifice their offspring to the devil as, as sacrifices in the burning, fiery arms of Moloch. And they were insulting God with every indescribable degradation of the imaginations of men that had turned themselves wholesale back away from God. 
And it was for the sake of the decency and for the sake of unborn posterity that God let the plague come in the first place in behind the scenes. And they were not 70,000 innocent men. They just got their comeuppance. If you don't know what that means, that's maniac. That's language from Maine and Vermont. What it means, it means you get what's coming. You, you got what's coming to you. That's what it means. And these 70,000 men did not fall under an unjust violence of, by the plague to die under the wrath of God unjustly. They had it coming. The soul that sinneth that shall die. God's no milksop and he doesn't play with the thing. You sin, you're going to get in trouble. And the wages of sin is death. Not a slap on the wrist and we'll, we'll parole you to your grandmother for the next three months. That's, that's the way they do today. And the whole earth is becoming more and more filled with violence. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning to the eve to the time appointed. Uh, that's three days. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And there was an angel of God that came down and stood over the city of Jerusalem with a drawn sword. This was an emblem of the action of the, uh, of the plague. And he was about to smite the city of Jerusalem. David's down there praying. God's up there looking with an aching heart. Don't you think sin and judgment makes God feel good? God yearns over us and his lost prodigal world to get them back into fellowship with himself. David saw the angel. God opened his eyes and he saw the angel. And then David, for the third time, really began to scratch gravel and get down to the nitty-gritty and really get down to base rock-bottom repentance. And he gets down and his, I believe his tears came. And the angel stretched forth his hand to, de to destroy Jerusalem. And the angel was by the threshing place of a man called Arana. He was a Jebusite. David spake unto the Lord when he saw the angel and smote the people and said, Lo, I have sinned. I've done wickedly. But these poor sheep, what have they done? Let thy hand be upon me and upon my father's house, but let these people go. My brother, when you get down to the place before God where you're willing to shoulder the blame and you quit saying, the woman thou gavest me, I was getting learn right, but the pastor, but the deacons, but my wife, my kids, they didn't treat me right. They took my Sunday school class away from me and I'm not going to play no more in their old church and I'm going to take my dolls and go home. Now, sir, not going to play with my bucket and shovel anymore. And you get up a myth tree. Understand what I'm driving at? When you really get down, you begin to say, I'm the one to blame, Lord. Not the deacons, not the pastor, not, not my wife, not the kids, not the governor, not, the, not the, anything else. I'm the villain. I'm the victim. I'm the culprit. I'm the low-down, wicked traitor that's, that's that's committed high treason against your love and government. My God, I need to be judged. Judge me, but let the other people go. My brother, when you get down there, you're getting down to rock bottom. Yes, sir. And God said, Dad, got a message for you. Yes, Lord. Go tell David. What do you want me to tell him? You go tell David this. Dad came into David right away. Says, oh, king, got a message from the Lord for you. What is it? Thus saith the Lord, go up where the angel's standing with a drawn sword. Go up there by the threshing floor. Offer burnt offerings and peace offerings that the plague might be stayed from Israel. And David got up early, as the Irish say, early in the morning. He didn't fool around and play dominoes and play 18 holes of golf before he started. Bless God, he, he made tracks. He got up early in the morning. He was down there at Zion, just over the wall there at that south wall of the temple enclosure. Zion was down there, and he had to climb a big flight of steps to get up to Moriah, where the temple was later built. That's where the threshing floor of Arana was, and the threshing floor was that big rock where the dome of the rock stands over that rock. That's the rock, the rock of the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. And so... David got up early in the morning, went up, and Arana and David were good friends. And Arana looked out and saw the king coming, and he went out and salaamed and 
and salamed and salami, salami, baloney. I mean, he, he went down and bowed himself and said, salami, salami. Uh, 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 forgive me, folks. And Aruna said, Wherefore doth my lord the king come unto his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee, that I might offer peace offerings and burnt offerings, that the plague might be stayed. Arana said, King, help yourself. There's the threshing floor. There's the instrument of the oxen for wood, and there's the oxen. Help yourself. I wouldn't charge you a red dime, a red cent. Go ahead, take it. Anything to get this horrible plague stopped. And the king says, Nay, but I will not offer unto the Lord my God that which costs me nothing. There's altogether too many folks on earth that are trying to get by giving God the least they can. Not Christ for the nations. Thank God. I was never in a more giving, liberal, loving, shouting, praying bunch in all my life than Christ for the nations. But I'm talking about some individuals I've met in past history. Always trying to chisel God down a little bit. David said, I won't offer unto the Lord that which costs me nothing. My brother, when you offer to God and when you really go through with God, it's going to cost you something. I don't mean only in finance, in money, but it's going to cost you a lot of other things too, probably. It's going to cost you crying. It's going to cost you possibly friendships going to cost you maybe a certain degree of isolation that you've never dreamed of. It's going to cost you, I'll tell you flat, it's going to cost you a lot of separation. It's going to cost you hours of loneliness. It's going to cost you much misunderstanding. People won't understand you. They didn't understand him, but quit arguing. And quit complaining. They spit on him, and he answered not a word. And the servant is not above his Lord. If they hate me, Jesus said, they'll hate you. Oh, but that, that, that means just before the great lot of rain outpouring. No, it means a principle in life. The world hates Christ, and if they could get a hold of him today, they'd crucify him again. You think they're going to pat you in the back and love you and smile on you? I'm talking about the world. It's only as you portray Christ to them and they get to Christ that they're going to come and merge with you in love. And so, David went up and bought the threshing floor, got built an altar, and that was the, later on the very place where the, where the temple was built and where the brazen altar of the temple was built. On that, on that rock there, the Mohammedans got it and built a dome over it and called it the Dome of the Rock. But that's the place. It was the very spot where Abraham laid Isaac on his altar and drew his sacrificial knife and said, Oh, God, I can't understand it, but the only way I can figure it is you're going to raise him from the dead. He was about to plunge the knife in Isaac's heart, and God says, Hold it. I know that now you won't withhold anything from me. It costs something to do the will of God. Abraham's eyes were opened. He saw the ram caught in the thicket. That's Jesus caught in the thorn bush of sin, stands for the curse. And he took and offered the ram in the place of his son. And in a figure, Paul says, he received Isaac as though he were actually raised from the dead. As far as Abraham was concerned, it was an actual resurrection from the dead. Same identical geographical spot, that little old spot that these tourists to the Holy Land go and see. That's what happened there. That's where, that's where Abraham offered Isaac, and that's where, Ab that's where David built his altar for the plague to be stayed, and that's where the brazen altar stood, maybe six feet away, but that, that's where it was in the temple enclosure, right there, maybe 30 feet away. I wasn't there, but I know that's the spot. And as soon as the smoke of David's sacrifice began to wend its crooked, greasy way heavenward, there was not another Israelite died. There was not another man of Judah died. 
The plague was obliterated. The plague came to a sudden grinding halt, like four-wheel brakes. Shrrr, screeching, grinding halt. And the plague was stayed. Blessed be God and the Lamb forever. And one day Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all the former types and the fulfillment of this portrayal of truth, which portrays Calvary. He didn't get out of it. He was not exempt. He drank to the very bottom of the cup, the very dregs of all the hate and the poison and the sin and the murder and the lust and the dirt. And I want to tell you something else. The cancers and the tumors and the diseases and the viruses and everything else that has cursed the race because of sin, it was all there, in essence, in the cup. And Jesus drank it into his bloodstream. He drained it to the very dregs. And they opened his side, and the blood poured out. And he made his soul an offering for sin. And God looked down from heaven and saw it. Couldn't stand the ghastly sight, and drew the blinds in the death chamber of his son, and there was mercifully darkness over the earth from the sixth to the ninth hour. Coming with their torches, they found that he was already expired. They took him from the cross. But thank God, on the third day he rose from the dead, and the plague was stayed. And for every son and daughter of Adam's race, from that moment to this, that'll take their stand under the smoking sacrifice of Calvary's cross, on the bleeding sacrifice of the Son of God on Calvary, the plague in their life comes absolutely to a halt. It stops. No more plague. No more curse. For Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, as it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Blessed be his name, that the blessings, the law means all the good things God ever promised Abraham and all his descendants, that the blessings of Abraham might come on us who believe in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah to God and the Lamb forever. And that takes in divine healing and all the rest. There was a little boy born up in uh, Ellenburg, New York State, a number of years ago, of course, and his mother died. His father was out busy working all day and neglected the poor little kid, and he learned to smoke cigarettes. Later on, his father moved over to the state of Vermont, and he lived in a college town. Now they have smoking rooms and beer-guzzling rooms in a lot of the colleges for the students and the faculty. But in those days, old stern New England with this rock-bound coast and puritanical principles, you weren't allowed to smoke a cigarette on college grounds, and so... The boys would smoke, puff their cigarettes, and shoot the butt right outside the college gate. This poor little kid, seven years old, looking off some of these big, fine-looking basket football players. He took a few puffs. About two years later, he was a confirmed cigarette smoker, a fiend, chain smoker. And from that he went in the hay fields as a boy, to drinking switchel. You know what switchel is? Switchel is a, is a, they take a little ice water and put a cup of ginger in it and lace it down with some homemade hooch, uh, liquor, and, uh, and the farmers get sweating and they're hot, they take a drink of switchel. Well, come on, Ed, have a drink of switchel. So it wasn't long before Ed acquired uh, an appetite for switchel. And it wasn't long before he was guzzling lager beer. By the time he was about 17 years old, he was a he was a drunkard. Oh, not just a maudlin alcoholic. He was a fiend for work. He fought against it, and he'd stay sober for maybe seven or eight months, and then he'd go off on a weekend bender, be gone all maybe five or six days, come home all beat up, all his money gone. Work. He was a fiend for work, and that was a that was a good thing. He was able to work off that awful energy, but he was a tyrant. He tried to reform. He took the Keeley cure down in Tennessee, I believe it was. 
That's some institute for alcoholics that they had way back in those days. And, uh, and uh, time went on. It went from bad to worse. Had a lovely farm. He sobered up long enough to marry the most beautiful girl in the Methodist church, choir. She was good, clean Christian, tried to be a Christian as far as the light she had, keep the Sabbath day and go to church. That was about all the light she had in that little community. He sobered up long enough to marry the girl. And he stayed sober, lived a nice, decent, clean life. He was never a criminal, never had a brush with the law. But high-tempered, vitriolic temper, impatient, oh my, chewing tobacco, smoking cigars, cutting the ash end off and chewing the rest of it and then swallowing the cud. He was half crazy. Cigarettes, plug of tobacco, pouch of tobacco, cigars and a pipe. He couldn't get enough nicotine. And his nerves got so bad, he went to old Doc Carmen, and old Doc Carmen said, to, look, well, you're in an awful fix. We'll have to give you a little morphine to quiet down your nerves. You don't take morphine 12 years to become an addict. He was going back to Doc Carmen, I need some more pills, little white pills to quiet his nerves. And he'd take too much, and, uh, and his heart would almost stop, so they gave him uh, strychnine for his heart. His heart was pounding, and his heart would pound too much, and they'd take some morphine. So he lived with his overalls out on the farm and with a vial of morphine in one pocket and a vial of strychnine in the other pocket and five brothers chewing tobacco in one pocket and a plug in the other pocket and a pipe in the other pocket and cigarettes in the other pocket. And he was a going, a coming, and a going, and a blowing. <laughs> and every few months, he'd go off to nearest town, be gone Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, blizzards howling. Two o'clock in the morning, the old horse got tired being tied out there outside the saloon, and he came home and banged with his foot on the old barn door, and the oldest son got up, about 14 years old, says, where's Pop? The horse had sense enough to come home, but they didn't know whether the old man was left out there in the ditch somewhere, frozen like a frozen mackerel, or where he was. Worry, heartache, trouble, sorrow. Some godly Christian Missionary Alliance people had come along just about six months before the event that I'm now going to tell you. Came along, and his wife got gloriously saved. And they taught her divine healing. The oldest daughter, they had a big raft of children by this time. I think about eight or nine by this time. And uh, the oldest daughter had a big goiter on her neck. And she also had heart trouble. So this woman, these alliance people said, you can lay the word of God on the person's body. And the word of God, he sent his word and healed them. And they took it literally. So this woman laid the word of God on her daughter's chest and said, God, there's your word. You said he sent his word and healed them. The girl got instantly healed of her heart trouble and the goiter disappeared. God, was, God, God had his hand on the family. Oh, what sorrow, what heartache. The mother was at her wit's end. He'd get down on his knees and cry, Jesse, Jesse, before God, I hope he kills me if I ever act like a dirty dog like that again and go off on a drunken bender for, the, for over the weekend. I hate it. I wish I could get rid of it. I, I didn't want to do it. I'll never do it again. If you'll only forgive me, I'll never do it again. And so he'd straighten up and stay sober for another three or four months, and then he was off again. And he started to get worse and worse. Heart trouble, nerves, strychnine, morphine. And then he started to get something wrong with his back. The doctor said, that's spinal meningitis. The type of spinal meningitis that goes up your back till it hits your brain and they're going to tie you down in a hospital bed and you're going to die a raving maniac. How long? Three months at the most. About half that time had already expired. He went off to a meeting. He was trying to get to God, 
trying to pray down at the barn. Oh, God, can't you help me? But then the devil had a hold of him, very probably demon-possessed. No deliverance. The plague was on him. The awful hellish plague of sin and darkness and destruction and anger and unhappiness and woe was on him. He was taking his life just a very short time by medical science to live. And somebody gave him a little paper. The name of the paper, thank God for literature. I wish God would touch some of these millionaires. You don't have to be a millionaire. Touch somebody to underwrite more literature program for Christ for the Nations to get this glorious gospel out through the printed page. Somebody hand them a little simple four-leaf, four-page paper called Word and Work. At that time, the first Pentecostal paper that was in print, as far as I know, after the Azusa Street outpouring of the Holy Ghost in 1967, and on the back page it said, come to the camp meeting. People are being saved, and Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. Are you distressed, diseased, or in debt? Come and let Jesus carry your load. The sick are being healed. People are being baptized in the Holy Ghost and speaking in other tongues. Came home from this particular religious gathering where he sought to get some help and didn't get anything because he was so blinded and deaf to the Word of God. He didn't get anything. And it was not an evangelistic meeting. It was, a, it was more or less of a missionary business convention. He didn't, there was, the gospel appeal didn't go out. But somebody handed him this little paper. He came home, and his wife said, Ed, did you get anything? He said, no, I'm dying, and I'm sick, and I'm hopeless, and God himself won't hear me, and I'm going to hell. And he threw the paper across the kitchen floor, and she went and picked it up, read this little ad. She said, Ed, you're gone. He said, I won't go. There's nothing in it. But she packed his celluloid collar, his extra pair of socks, and said, you're gone, shoved him out the door and got him on the streetcar. This was in the heart of Connecticut, and he went up to a place just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, and the woman that founded the Pentecostal movement in Dallas, Texas, Mrs. Mary Woodworth Etter. She brought Pentecost to Tulsa, Oklahoma. She brought Pentecost to Houston, Texas. Wherever that handmaid of the Lord went, she left Pentecostal churches behind her. They were the days of real persecution. She didn't go in and get two or 3,000 strong financial Pentecostal folks to back her. She went in cold turkey with nobody behind her. And the miracles that God wrought through the life and ministry of Mrs. Mary Woodworth at her were something to talk about and something to write home about. If ever God raised up an evangelist, he raised that woman up. She had the light on Pentecost before they ever got it in Topeka or before they ever saw it in Los Angeles speaking in other tongues and visions and dreams, talk about phenomenal manifestations of the Holy Ghost. I never met Mrs. Woodworth at her, but I've talked to so many hundreds that were in her meetings. And anyway, he, this, this man got on the streetcar and went up to this little old campground. Got on, got on the campground. He said, man, I never knew there were so many foreigners in Massachusetts as there are here. They were all talking funny. He said, well, there must be a bunch of Bulgarians and Hungarians and Italians. They were talking in tongues, but he didn't know it. And she preached that night, and he didn't get anything. He was too dull. It was also brand new, but he was intensely interested. I won't drag it out. He went up to an early morning prayer meeting. The next morning would last about a half hour, and God held him there spellbound till 12 o'clock talking to him. If I save you and heal you, will you give up this? Will you give up that? Will you give up your racehorse? Will you give up your farm? Will you give up your children? Will you give up your, your, all your children? Will you, will you give up everything? He kept saying, he didn't know. He just, yes, yes, yes. Twelve o'clock, a woman put her hand on his shoulder and said, Brother, I perceive God is talking to you. He said, where's the people? It's about a hundred there when he started. She said, oh, they left two or three hours ago to go down to the morning service. He was there all that time. God was dealing with him. That afternoon, he sat on the end of a log on the campground and filled his pipe with tobacco. The ignorant. <laughs> filled his pipe with tobacco and sat there and smoked it and said, Devil, 
I'm going to enjoy this last pipeful because it's the last pipeful. And if God don't set me free tonight, I don't, he, 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 he just knew he couldn't live. He didn't want to live. He was desperate. And that night, this blessed spirit-anointed saint of the living God, little woman in a little in a, in a nurse's uniform. You know why she wore a nurse's uniform? It was the cheapest dress she could buy. And Mrs. Hutter got up and told she came on the platform with a tambourine, singing, Hallelujah, what a thought Jesus full salvation brought. And his eyes got as big as teacups and he bugged out and he took a keen interest in everything she said. He didn't understand one-tenth of what she said, but he knew they were coming to the altar to get help so he came to the altar to get help, and she and her son-in-law, Earl Clark, came to him, and Mrs. Hutter said, Dear brother, is there anything I can do for you? What, are you? what do you want? And he said, I'm dying. I just have about six more weeks to live. I'm bound by tobacco, rum, morphine, strychnine, and I'm dying of spinal meningitis. And she said, let's pray for him, Earl. And they laid their hands gently on his head and said, every dirty devil come out of him. Every disease leave him in the mighty name of Jesus, the healer, the savior of the world. And he went over on the floor, wasn't shoved over. He fell under the power of God and laid there on the ground. He doesn't know how long, at least an hour. When he got up, he said, my hand's not shaking. My heart, it's not jumping. That awful pain crawling up my spinal column, it's gone. I'm healed. I'm saved. Oh, I got to go home and tell Jesse. Say, fella, is there, is there a train? Yes, there's a streetcar. goes right through the campground, and there's one due in five minutes. He grabbed his other socks and valise and jumped on the... He did stop long enough to buy a songbook. Pentecostal Power Complete by R.E. Winston. You wouldn't know that songbook. If there's any old-time Pentecostal here, you'll know it. He heard them sing. He was the county fiddler at all the dances all over the county. He played the fiddle left-handed, and it wasn't strung left-handed. He played it left-handed. He played a right-handed fiddle left-handed. <laughs> and he got on the New York, New Haven, Hartford Railroad train that night, rode down to New Haven, got on the Suburban, went out to Waterbury, Connecticut, got on another Suburban and went over to Woodbury and walked about three miles at dawn out to the farm and got there just as the family were stirring around. His wife said, Ed, did you get anything? He said, Jesse, I'm saved. I'm healed. Little girl ran out and she, oh, Papa's coming. This was early in the morning. She ran out down the road 100 feet and he picked her up and said, Marion, you've got a new pop. She said, huh? She, he said, you've got a new pop. He said, oh, that's nice. <laughs> and he went in the house and tried to tell his wife how he was saved, tried to describe all the meeting, told what happened, told what hit him, told how glad he was. And the oldest son stuck his head in the kitchen from doing the chores down at the barn, quietly shut the door and went out and told the other boys helping with the chores and said, Pop's in there, drunk as a lord. He's telling Mom a great big long story about getting saved and healed. He's a drunk. He can't stand up. His eyes are all bloodshot. Sure they were. He'd been riding on the train all night. The old coal, coal smoke coming in, cinders in his eyes. He said the wheels went around clickety-click, clickety-click, clickety-click. They were saying glory to God, 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 all the way home. Did he, did he speak in tongues? No! He thought they were a bunch of foreigners. He didn't know anything about tongues. So he said, look, over, old boys and girls, before you go to school, I want to play you one of the songs. This is a song I learned. He got out the fiddle and started to play it left-handed. Hallelujah, what a thought. Jesus' full salvation brought victory, victory. And the kids all stood around, nine of them, looking. <laughs> Hallelujah. Oh, what a day. What a glorious salvation. What a wonderful healing. I think it was the second night he was home. He woke up about 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning and said, I'm going to do like I saw them do at the camp meeting. I'm going to put my hands up and just praise the Lord. So he quietly didn't want to wake his wife and says, Thank you, Jesus. I'm healed. 
I'm saved. And all of a sudden, a thunderbolt of God's glory hit him, and the bed began to shake. And he began to talk in tongues. And he didn't know what it was. And his wife woke up and said, what happened? And in between times, he said, I started to praise the Lord and began this funny language came on me. And she said, well, I read in the Bible something about that. And she said, it must have been God because you were praising God. And I'm sure it must be God. She had more sense than a lot of theologians today. And so... One of the books he bought before he left the campground was this book. How do you know all about the story? The kids, the kids said, look, Pop, we like to hear you sing those songs. And we like to hear you pray. For he said, you never heard your Pop pray before, but you're going to hear him pray now. Get on your knees. And when he said, get on your knees, they got on their knees. <laughs> And so he prayed, and they said, oh, do it again tonight. And so after about a week, they said, look, we can't do the chores. Have prayers and make those two miles to school on foot. Now they bust them and then build an $850,000 gymnasium for exercise. They didn't do it that way in Connecticut. So they said, we, we, we want to take our breakfast time. And for two years, that family never ate breakfast. They had morning prayers instead. The old man would get out his violin and saw on the violin, and they'd pray. And they never thought of, they never thought of going to a doctor. All right, hurry up, what happened? Next to the oldest girl was in one of their little prayer meetings one night worshiping the Lord, and she saw a vision. And uninhibited, she stood up. She was 13 years old. And she said, oh, folks, oh, I just saw the most wonderful vision. Oh, I've got to, oh, I've got to tell you about my little vision. It was wonderful. I saw the cross. And I saw lilies all around the cross. And on the cross beams of the cross, on the cross beam, it said in letters of gold, what it said was, Jesus is coming soon. But when she tried to read it, it came out in other tongues. Hallelujah. How do you know? That was my wife. <laughs> and H.B. Garlock that wrote, Before We Kill and Eat You, that was his father. He just died not too many years ago. Oh, he didn't die in three weeks or six weeks or six months. He lived as hard as railroad iron until he was 88. Glory to God. And then he, then he just stopped living. God took him home. Oh, hallelujah. And then he had sense enough to send all the kids that he could off to Bible school. I think out of the 10 or 11 potential students that might have gone, I think he sent eight off to Bible school. They didn't all turn out to be preachers, but a lot of them did. And that's why Reverend John Garlock is leading Christ for the Nation's Bible Institute, because his grandfather, my father-in-law, met the man that died outside the city of Jerusalem, that the plague might be stayed. And the plague was stayed. It stopped. One time I said, Pop! Did you ever go back? Don't you lie to me. You level with me now. Did you ever take another glass of lager beer as long as you lived? Did you ever sneak a cigarette on the side? He said, the nearest I came to it, I was in a dream. And I was with some of my old drunken cronies in the back end of a saloon. And they said, come on, Ed, have a glass of lager beer. And they filled her up, and he said, I took it in my hand, and I began to tremble, and I began to cry. And I said, oh, Jesus, I don't want to go back to that slop. I don't want to go back to that swill. Jesus, I don't want it. And he said, I woke up. Glory to God. <laughs> it was only a dream. <laughs> Glory to God in the land forever. And I don't care what your ailment is or what your need is. There's one standing in our midst tonight who's able to lay his hand on you and deliver you effectually from every work of the devil, from the crown of your head to the sole of your feet. Hallelujah.
Glory be to his name forever and forever and forever. I'm going to quit. Things keep crowding into my mind. It's hard for me to sort them out, but I've talked long enough. I've made it clear. If there's anyone here tonight that does not have the baptism of the Holy Ghost, in modern parlance, they call it a charisma or a charismata. If you want that, you want the Holy Ghost to come in and fill you, I invite you to walk up there and go in that door there. It's this prayer room. A group of students and saints will get around you and you can be filled with the Holy Ghost tonight. If you're bound by any kind of sin or there's any vestige or remnant of the cursed plague of, of the curse of sin in your life or in your secret soul, you go in that prayer room or kneel down here and call on God for cleansing through the precious blood. I could rattle off 500 cases right now of miraculous deliverances from sin, but I thought I'd give you my father-in-law's experience because it's so precious to me and it's so wonderful and it's so real. What are you playing? Oh, that's music to my soul. And if you want to get to God, come and seek the face of God tonight. Shall we all stand? Hallelujah, what a thought. Hallelujah, what a thought.